0: Good morning again. Good to see everybody. Could I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. If you're new with us, welcome. Good to see you this morning. We are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. This morning we come to John 20, and let's pick it up in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. That's a John's way of referring to himself, John the Apostle. And she said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to... The tomb. Now, as we read the accounts of the resurrection in the uh, four gospels, skeptics have pointed out that the gospels seem to contradict themselves as to to the events that transpired the morning that Jesus rose from the dead. First of all, let me uh, set the scene by saying at the end of Matthew chapter 27, we see some of the women that followed Jesus were standing afar off, and were witnesses of him being crucified, broken-hearted, no doubt. Matthew tells us they included Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joses, and the mother of Zebedee's sons, that would be Salome. John adds in his gospel that Mary the mother of Jesus was there also, as was Mary the wife of Clopas. Now, after Jesus died, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus asked Pilate if they could have his body so they could give it a proper burial. The problem was the sun was about to go down, which meant the Sabbath, which in this case was a high Sabbath, was about to begin. So Joseph and Nicodemus quickly wrapped Jesus' body for burial, but they didn't have enough time to do a proper job before putting his body in the tomb, rolling the stone over the opening, and departing for home so that they could get there before the sun went down and the Sabbath began. Now, the women saw where they had buried the body of Jesus and uh, purposed that they would come back to the tomb early uh, Sunday morning to properly finish preparing his body for burial. And so we see them coming the first day of the week, John tells us, Sunday, of course, bringing the sweet spices that they would need to finish the job Joseph and Nicodemus had started. The Gospels tell us they were coming to the tomb early that morning. The word early is a Greek word that means the fourth watch of the night. You see, the Romans had divided the night into four watches, the first watch being from 6 to 9 p.m., The second from 9 to 12 a.m., 12 to 3 was the third watch of the night, followed by the fourth watch, which was from 3 to 6 in the morning. One of the problems skeptics point out is the seeming discrepancies in the Gospels as to what women, which of the women came to the tomb that first resurrection Sunday morning and when they got there. So who were they and when did they get there? Now, Matthew tells us in chapter 28 of his gospel, verse 1, that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, probably the mother of James and is mentioned in Matthew 27, verse 56, they went to the tomb. So two Marys, Mary Magdalene and another Mary. Mark mentions that, uh, he mentions these two, but also says that Salome, the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus, was also with them. And Luke adds another woman by name, Joanna. Joanna. Now, we don't know how many gals went to the tomb early that first resurrection Sunday morning. Uh, At least four or five, maybe eight or nine. We don't know. I want you to know, though, there was probably a healthy group. All the women that followed Jesus probably wanted to go and to properly finish preparing his body for burial because they all loved him. They all loved him. Now, whereas Matthew, Mark, and Luke mention all these gals, John is the only one, uh, John only mentions Mary Magdalene coming to the tomb. And he says it was still dark when she got there. However, Mark tells us that when the women got to the tomb, the sun had already risen. What are we to make of all of this? How are we to reconcile these, listen, apparent contradictions? There are no true contradictions in God's word. It's perfect. It's divinely inspired. But sometimes we misread a passage. Sometimes we don't really take into consideration fully what could be going on. And so many come away thinking the Bible has errors or contradictions in it. No, the only problem is the way we often read it and interpret it leads to apparent contradictions, not genuine ones, all right? Let me tell you what I think happened that morning. I could be wrong. I have reread the Gospels over and over again uh, uh, on the day of Jesus' resurrection. And I'm trying to get a composite picture of all that happened that day, okay, that morning. Here's what I think happened the morning that Jesus rose from the dead. I believe that these women started out toward the tomb very early in the morning before the sun came up. Mark tells us that the main thing that these ladies were worried about was who was going to move the stone away from the mouth of the tomb so they could get in. As we have said before, this stone was no small problem for these gals. Uh, it weighed between three and four thousand pounds. You know, think of a car. You know, how are you going to move a car away from an opening to get in? I mean, how in the world were they ever going to move it back up the channel, this big stone, so they could properly finish preparing Jesus' body for burial? Now, they were probably worrying about this for the last three days, because they knew what they were going to do Sunday morning. But I think they were especially worried about it on their way to the tomb that morning. The interesting thing about it, and we've talked about this in the past, but the interesting thing about it was that when they finally got to the tomb, the problem they were so worried about had already been taken care of by God. Matthew 28, verse 1, now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. Isn't that interesting? Uh, This got me thinking about how much time and energy I have wasted over the years of my Christian life worrying about how I was going to solve a problem, you know, that I knew was coming down the road, only to get there and find out that God had already gone before me and worked it all out, you know? As a parent, especially as a father, you're worried how you're gonna pay for your kid's college education. Here's a, here's a little in- hint, don't send them. <laughs> Why in God's name would you send your kids to a cesspool indo- indoctrination camp like secular colleges? Christian colleges, different story. Or, I know we dads worry about how we're gonna pay for our, our daughters' weddings. Pray she marries a rich guy. Then it won't be an issue. God's got all kinds of ways we don't even know about to fix things. I do know this. The Bible says, Psalm 37 says, do not fret. In other words, do not worry. It only causes harm, right? It's interesting that the English word worry comes from an old German root meaning to strangle or to choke. And that's exactly what worry does. It's a kind of mental and emotional strangulation, which probably causes more mental and physical afflictions than any other single cause. And I've heard experts say that, that psychologists and things that know stress and things, they have said. um, Stress, worry, um, number one cause of heart attacks and other physical and mental disorders. So guys, these women started out for the tomb before the sun came up. Coming from their respective houses, which meant they were starting off from different locations in the city. Keep that in mind. I think it's important to the story in weaving together the accounts in the Gospels, okay? They started out early in the morning before the sun came up, coming from their respective houses, which they probably lived all over the city, different parts of town, right? Now, it could be that some of them lived close, and they had planned a rendezvous, you know, right outside so they can walk together. That's true. Or maybe uh, some of them um, lived in different parts of the town, so they were coming in groups from different areas, which meant they didn't all get to the tomb at the same time. That's important to to remember, okay? Um, The gospel doesn't tell us what group of women, who were in it, and what time each got to the tomb, it's not important. It's only important that we know that these ladies came to the tomb, but I want you to know that they were coming from their houses, and their houses were probably sprinkled throughout the town, Uh, so they gathered up in groups probably to, to come to the tomb, to rendezvous there. That's where they wanted to be. That's where the uh, preparing Jesus' uh, body for a proper burial would take place. It could be that Mary Magdalene lived in a location pretty much by herself, which meant she could have been coming to the tomb all alone that morning. Now remember, or let me say this, in any case, it seems that Mary Magdalene, in her earnestness to get to the tomb, went ahead of the other women arriving at the tomb first, just before the sun had risen. When she saw that the stone had been removed from the door of the tomb, she concluded that somebody had broken into the tomb and stolen the body of her Lord. What she and the other women didn't know at that time was that an earthquake had occurred and the stone had been moved by an angel. In fact, Matthew 28, verses 1 and 2, indicates, seems to imply, the angel caused the earthquake. Why would an angel, who was going to move the stone out of the way, why would he cause an earthquake? The earthquake didn't move the stone. So why would he cause an earthquake? Could it be that that earthquake opened up numerous tombs around the city of Jerusalem, which Matthew says, after Jesus rose from the dead, Some of his followers who had died were resurrected, came out of their tombs, went into the city, doing what? I don't think they were getting a Starbucks. (laughs) I think they were being a witness. Look at us. We belong. And remember, Jesus resurrected on the feast of what? First fruits. That was the agricultural feast that God gave the Jewish people to celebrate Where the first fruits of the barley harvest was cut down, taken to the temple, and offered to God. And as you put God first and gave him the first, he would respond by giving you a bumper crop at the time of the great harvest that was coming. And Paul makes a big point to say that Jesus Christ was the first fruits. I think Matthew adds some of those saints were also part of the first fruits. They didn't rise rise from the dead until after Jesus, he's supreme. But I think that this group became the first fruits of all of us who have believed in Christ. The great harvest of all of us will happen at the rapture. But I think when Jesus uh, ascended back to his father, these saints went with him. They all presented themselves to the father as the first fruits of a great harvest that was coming. And God guaranteed, yes, in fact, that harvest is in fact going to happen. All right, uh, just my thoughts. Why did the angel need to do an earthquake? I think he had reason for that. But um, the angel also then moved the stone. Now, here's, this is interesting. In John's gospel, he uses the Greek verb Iro for moved, airo, in reference to the stone being, and notice John doesn't say, it was rolled up the channel. Remember the way these tombs for wealthy people were constructed. You had an opening, either a cave or a a man-made opening in a side of a mountain. And then they would uh, chisel a channel in front of it, uh, a slight incline downward, and they would take a large, round, flat stone, and they would have it on top of this channel. And it was just a very slight incline, uh, because you don't want to be pushing a 4,000-pound stone up a big hill. Okay, um, but they would use that inclined to move the stone back and forth, to either open or close the tomb. John doesn't describe that as what had happened. He uses a Greek verb, iro, which in this case, in our Bibles, my new King James translated, the stone being taken away from the tomb, not rolled away, taken away. This verb used in this context means to pick up and carry. There was something about the scene that morning that captivated and confused the disciples. The women first, who got there first, but later the disciples. What was it? Well, first of all, if it had been grave robbers, and that was common back then, grave robbers, they would have just pushed the stone up that slight incline in that channel and left it there at the top. And then taken the body. But John is describing a scene that he saw that was quite unusual. It's as if a giant being, an angel, didn't just roll the stone out of the way. He could have done that. He didn't do that because he wanted to create an unusual scene to promote how that, it wasn't grave robbers. God did this. And so the angel picks up this giant stone moves it a few feet away from the tomb, but not in the channel, and then sits on top of it. It's quite a calling card, right? Um, Years ago, an English trial lawyer and critic of Christianity named Frank Morrison started out, as so many of them have done, started out to write a book disproving the resurrection of Jesus Christ. However, after careful study, and remember this gentleman was a trial lawyer. He had been trained in the proper way to collect evidence and then interpret the evidence, what it pointed to, what it meant. So he puts all of his expertise into some research to, to gather evidence to disprove the resurrection. And he was compelled by that very evidence to become a Christian. And he was compelled then to write a book in defense of the resurrection called Who Moved the Stone? Keep that in mind. We'll mention that just briefly next time. I don't want to derail our study this morning. Now, One thing I do want to say. Remember this. The angel didn't move the stone to let Jesus out of the tomb. In his glorified body, he could walk through walls, through closed doors, right? So why did the angel move the stone? Not to let Jesus out, but to let the disciples in so that they could confirm the tomb was indeed empty. Now, let me just stop here and say something about the day Jesus was crucified in relation to the day he rose from the dead, which we know was Sunday. No doubt about that. Sunday was the day the Lord rose from the dead. But many hold to a, a Friday crucifixion for a lot of reasons, that we've tried to address those a few weeks ago. But many hold to a Friday crucifixion. We even have it, you know, etched in stone. Good Friday, right? But I personally believe that Jesus was crucified on Thursday. Why do I believe that? Because in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 40, Jesus told us, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And as I have said before, there is no way you can get three days and three nights in the grave with a Friday crucifixion, even if you count the three hours of remaining daylight on Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. And many do, we got to count that Three hours on Friday as one day I have. Numerous times. I did it again in preparation for this study. Piece of paper. I mapped it all out. There is no way you can get three days and three nights in the tomb with a Friday crucifixion. I've heard people say, well, it was Wednesday. That's four days and four nights. It has to be Thursday. Now, I don't know how that little piece of information is going to enrich your walk. I just know as a teacher, details matter to me. So I had to get that off my chest. All right. So guys, once again, when Mary Magdalene saw that the stone had been removed from the door of the the tomb, she concluded that somebody had broken into the tomb and stolen the body of Jesus. Now, she immediately runs to tell Peter and John and says to them in in, uh, John 20, verse 2, When she finally gets to where they were staying, and she knew where they were staying, she says to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Now, while Mary was in the process of going to tell Peter and John what had happened, by this time the sun has now come up. Here's what I want you to understand. And, and, you know, the skeptics have a point. They have a point. If you read the various Gospels, it does seem like contradictory information. But let me just say this to you. I saw a, a program years ago where they put a group of people in a room with a with a, a screen, and they showed them, this was an insurance uh, company that wanted to test this, and they showed people um a a a car crash and then they took them you know they had them separate from each other and write down exactly what they saw if you didn't know those five six or seven people in that room saw the same accident you would swear they're talking about different accidents why because we have a tendency to focus on different details that doesn't mean anyone else's account of the details is wrong It's just different. So the idea that the four Gospels give us a different look at the resurrection, how many women, how many angels, when did things happen, doesn't mean that it's contradictory information. It just means that we have to piece it all together to get, listen, a composite look at all that took place. Now, remember what I said to you, that we don't know how many women, at least six, maybe more, were coming to the tomb that morning to finish preparing Jesus' body for burial. And again, I believe that they were coming from different parts of the city, wherever they lived. And they were probably starting out, maybe two or three here, one or, uh, two or three over here, maybe Mary Magdalene came alone. And they were getting to the tomb at different times. Mary got there first, and she got there while it was still dark. Sees the angel, or excuse me, sees the stone rolled away, assumes they had somebody had stolen the body of her Lord, and she runs off to tell the disciples what had happened. While she's going to see Peter and John, the sun by this time was coming up. And another group of women got there. Maybe not all of them at this time, but another group. The Gospels give us a little different sequence. And as the women get there, uh, one angel, two angels. How many angels were there? We don't know. My pastor used to say there were probably hundreds of angels appearing and disappearing all over this area. It was the greatest moment in the history of mankind, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And every time a group of women got to the tomb... They saw an angel or angels, who said to them, "Why are you seeking the living among the dead? He isn't here. He's risen. Didn't he tell you that? Go tell his disciples." And so they were. Each group was leaving, to go to the disciples. Mary gets there first and dumps on Peter and John. The tombs, the stone is rolled away. The body of Jesus isn't there. They're dumbfounded. They're processing this when another group comes, says the same thing. Another group of women. We'll read it out of Matthew's gospel. Chapter 28, starting with verse 5. You can do your own reading of the four Gospels uh, today or this week. I'll just read you what Matthew says. Now, every one of these says that the tomb is empty and Jesus is risen. There's no you know, m- miscommunication about that, just some of the details. I'll, I'll read you out of Matthew's Gospel, verse 5. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and ran to bring his disciples' word. So you have to, again, get the picture in your mind's eye. Mary gets there first. Mary Magdalene tells them the tomb is empty. The body of Jesus is gone. Peter and John are dumbfounded. They're trying to process this. Another group of women comes not long after, says the same thing, maybe a third group. At this point, Peter and John get up, and they take off for the tomb. They have to see this for themselves. Now, John mentions that the younger of the two, which is John himself, outran Peter, got to the tomb first. John 20, verse 4. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. So John, a younger man, arrived at the tomb, When he arrived at the tomb, he saw that the stone had been taken away from the opening. Again, weird, because it wasn't just rolled up the channel. It had been picked up. Somebody picked it up, moved it a few feet, right? So you saw the stone had been taken away from the opening. However, uh, John didn't enter the tomb, but rather he cautiously remained outside and looked in. And he had to stoop to look in, even as we have talked about Gordon's Calvary uh, in the tomb that was discovered there in 18, 1867, uh, 68? around that time, okay? And you, to this day, you have to stoop down to look inside. That's how they made these tombs. Uh, I think it was a, a, uh, is a way to cause you to bow. They wanted you to enter with humility. It's death. It's something that we don't take lightly, right? It's reverent, a holy ground in a sense. Uh, when a loved one dies, so you have to stoop down um, and so on. To get in and so John does that he stoops down looks inside why didn't he go in well John you know was a Jew and um, don't forget it was at that time the feast of unleavened bread a seven-day feast that started the day after Passover Jesus was crucified on Passover so right now we're in the the middle of another feast a very big feast feast of unleavened bread week long And if you go back to Leviticus 23, where God gave the seven feasts of Moses, he said during the week of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that Sunday is to be another feast, the Feast of Firstfruits, the day Jesus rose from the dead. So John, at this moment, standing outside the tomb, is right there in the midst of two of the most important feasts of the Jewish year. Well, his Jewishness kicked in. I mean, as a Jew, he was taught that you don't, uh, during the major Jewish feasts of the year, you don't want to come in contact with anything that's going to defile you, lest you be disqualified from keeping the feast. And of course, that would definitely include going into a tomb, you know, sitting, stepping inside a tomb, the ultimate place to be defiled. So John stayed outside the tomb and simply looked inside. What did he see? Well, John saw the grave clothes that held the body of Jesus lying by themselves, undisturbed, but empty. The grave clothes. The word saw in verse 5, John saw, is the Greek word blepo and simply means to glance at. To glance at. So initially John just gave the empty tomb a quick glance. In fact, it's the same Greek word used of Mary Magdalene in chapter 20, verse 1. Initially, both Mary and John gave the scene a quick glance, blepo. Now, a few minutes later, Peter arrives. John 20, verse 6. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloth lying there. And the handkerchief, some interpret that to be a kind of a turban, Uh, That they put on the head, leaving the face exposed. Forget the shroud of Turin. Wrong. Okay? Uh, They wrapped Jesus' head, left his face exposed, and then wrapped his body with strips of linen cloth, almost like you would see of a mummy. But they didn't embalm. We talked about that. Okay? Jews did not embalm like the Egyptians. So Peter walks into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloth lying there and the handkerchief that had been around uh, Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded together in a place by itself. I'll come back to that. The language is clumsy, and I'll I'll tell you what I think is really uh, Peter is describing, or John writing it down. So when Peter got to the tomb, (laughs) he impulsively charges in, as we would expect Peter to do. All right? He also saw, verse 6, tells us. But the Greek word used of Peter and how he saw in verse 6 is the Greek word theoreo, which means to look carefully, to study and contemplate what you're looking at. What was Peter looking so intently at? What did he see in that tomb? He saw the linen cloths lying there empty. But he noticed that They were laying there like, listen, like an empty cocoon still retaining the shape of Jesus' body. That was weird, obviously. Peter knew this wasn't the work of grave robbers since they would have just taken the body, grave clothes, and all. That's why he was perplexed. He's looking at this going, what am I looking at here? Uh, Doesn't make sense, right? And yet even though Peter carefully examined the scene, he he still didn't understand that Jesus had risen from the dead. Not at this point. Well, now John figures, okay, if Peter's gone in, I'm going in, you know. So now John enters the tomb and gives it a closer look. Look at verse 8. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. Another Greek word. This time the Greek word now used of John seeing is ido ido which means to see and understand to perceive with intelligent comprehension or in other words John saw he understood and he believed John understood that the only way those linen clothes or cloths could be left in that condition would be listen if Jesus' body had passed right through them as he rose from the dead and they fell limp, still retaining the shape of Jesus' body, but now we're empty. Now we're empty. And I think the Holy Spirit wanted it this way because if this had not been the scene, well, let's put it this way. The Holy Spirit put us this way because he didn't want anyone thinking, we'll talk about this more next week, that Jesus had revived laying in that tomb. Some people believe he didn't really die on the cross. He passed out from loss of blood, all the <clears throat> beatings and things he had suffered. They really didn't die on Calvary. Cross. He just passed out. And when they took him down, thinking he was dead, laid him in the tomb, Eventually, the cool air of the tomb, again, we'll talk about this more next time, revived him. And if that had been the case, and Jesus had revived, and he had started to unwind himself, if he had done that, he would have thrown all the grave cloths on the ground in a heap. But that's not what Peter and John saw in that tomb, that first resurrection Sunday morning. So, guys, why am I focusing so much on the words translated saw? in this passage. Well, I think the Holy Spirit is using Mary, John, and Peter and how each of them looked into the empty tomb and saw what was there. In other words, they saw the evidence of Jesus' resurrection as an example of the different ways a lot of people look at the evidence surrounding the resurrection of Jesus Christ. First of all, Mary. Look, when Mary Magdalene got to the tomb that morning, She saw, obviously, that the stone had been taken away. Again, the Greek word for saw, in her case, is blepo. And it simply means something superficially. It means to see something superficially without necessarily comprehending what you're looking at. And, guys, there's a lot of people who are confused about the resurrection because they've only taken a quick superficial look at it. Maybe while growing up in Sunday school or going to Awanas when they were little or uh, Bible camp or some kind of vacation Bible school uh, as we put on in the, in the summer or fall. Um, and so they were introduced to the, to the resurrection, of course, but they've never given it more than a passing glance. And now that they're, now they've gotten older, they've gotten busier, of course, and uh, the focus of their life is work. Um, Taking the kids to soccer or baseball or, um, you know, um, working on the house. Uh, Maybe they have a special hobby like golf or something that's got them pretty consumed in doing that. Um, Or maybe planning vacations or just doing life, just doing life. And they just don't have any time to take a hard look a serious look at spiritual things like the resurrection. If you ask them what happened 2,000 years ago, that first resurrection Sunday morning, they would tell you they don't really know. Just like Mary, who really didn't know what to think. I mean, she saw the evidence of the resurrection, but didn't know what it all meant. She wasn't connecting the dots. Now, that brings us to Peter. Even though Peter studied the situation carefully, he didn't comprehend what had happened. And so while he was curious, listen, he was still confused. There are those who study, who study the Christian doctrine of the resurrection and still don't understand what happened. And I'm talking about scholars now, professors, Bible teachers, sometimes at the seminary level. There's a lot of liberal scholars out there who study the evidence they know the Bible and they've studied the evidence but they don't they're not willing to come to the obvious conclusion that it points to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead I mean again they know that history records the body of Jesus was gone from the tomb that's for sure but because they refuse to believe the obvious conclusion that he rose from the dead They came up with all kinds of ridiculous explanations as to why the tomb was empty. We'll look at a few of those next time. And guys, then we have John, who initially saw the evidence of the resurrection, listen, superficially, and didn't comprehend, but then gave it a closer look as he entered the tomb that morning and began to study the scene a little closer, and he saw then with understanding, and he believed. We read in verse 8. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. Guys, coming to believe in Jesus Christ is often a process of the Holy Spirit. It's often a process where the Holy Spirit opens a person's eyes a little at a time until finally the light goes on. Bing! They get it. All of a sudden, wow, I understand. And at that point they received Jesus Christ as their resurrected Savior. I want to understand something. Even though the Holy Spirit initially uses Mary and uh, Peter, as those that looked at the evidence and didn't quite understand, we know eventually they, they got saved. They were followers of Christ and were saved in the Old Testament sense. But now, as they have come to believe in the risen Christ, which they're going to do very shortly in the story, Now they are officially New Testament believers. You have to believe in the resurrection to go to heaven in the new covenant. Paul tells us that. No less than Romans 8 verses what? 8 and 9 or I think it's 8 and 9? And other places. So the question I need to ask you this morning is where are you in the process? If the Holy Spirit often opens people's eyes gradually over the course of time as they look at the evidence study the scriptures where are you in that process where you are you along in your own particular faith journey look seeking is fine now i have a problem with churches building the whole church around seekers because what about the saints you're not feeding the saints you're just giving the gospel every sunday morning gospel is awesome but the saints need to be fed but it's okay to be a seeker The problem is that you stop your quest for knowledge, for the truth about Jesus, somewhere along the way where you stop short. So a lot of folks who are uh, are not going to go to heaven, who have studied this subject in detail, and somewhere along the line got tired. And decided, well, you know, I just don't believe, and I'm tired of researching it, and so that's kind of it for me. That's a great tragedy because Jesus said to some who followed him when they gave him input, you are close to the kingdom of heaven. Not there yet. You're getting close. You've got to make that full commitment. The question I want to leave you guys with this morning is why can children believe in Jesus believe that he rose from the dead when some of the most brilliant minds in the world can't. Let me end with a true story along those lines. Why you can have children who understand, comprehend, understand, receive Christ. They get it. When often some of the most intelligent people, scholars now, don't believe. I mean, Read you this story, true story. I'll read and we'll close. The author said, and I quote: "Once upon a time, I had a young friend named Philip. Philip was born with Down's syndrome. He was a pleasant child, happy it seemed, but increasingly aware of the difference between himself and the other children. Philip went to Sunday school at the Methodist Church. His teacher, also a friend of mine, taught the third grade class." with Philip and nine other eight-year-old boys and girls. Now, you know eight-year-olds, he said. And Philip, with his differences, was not readily accepted by the group. But my teacher friend was creative, and he helped a group of eight-year-olds. They learned, they laughed, they played together, and they really cared about one another, another even though eight-year-olds don't say they actually care about one another out loud. My teacher friend could see it. He knew it. He also knew that Philip was not really a part of that group. Philip did not choose, nor did he want to be different. He just was, and that was just the way things were. My friend had a marvelous idea for his class, the Sunday after Easter last year. You know those things that pantyhose come in, the containers that look like great big eggs? My friend had collected ten of them. The children loved it when he brought them into the room. Each child was to get one. It was a beautiful spring day and the assignment was for each child to go outside, find a symbol for new life, put it into the egg and bring it back to the classroom. They would then open and share their new life symbols and surprises one by one. It was glorious. It was confusing. It was wild. They ran all around the church grounds, gathered their symbols and returned to the classroom. They put all the eggs on the table and then uh, the teacher began to open them all the children st- while all the children stood around the table watching. He opened one, and there was a flower, and they oohed and aahed. Uh, the girls did. <laughs> he opened another, and there was a little butterfly. Beautiful, the girls all said, since it is hard for eight-year-old boys to say beautiful. He opened another egg, and there was a rock inside and as third graders will, some laughed and some said, that's crazy. How's it? I really see my grandson Caden doing this. <laughs> you know Caden, you know what I mean. That's crazy. How's a rock supposed to be new life? But the smart little boy who found it spoke up. That's mine. And I knew all of you would get flowers and buds and leaves and butterflies and stuff like that. So I got a rock because I wanted to be different. And as for me, that's new life for me well they all laughed my teacher friend said something about to himself about the profundity of eight-year-olds and he opened the next egg. there was nothing there was nothing there the other children as eight-year-olds will said that's not fair that's stupid somebody didn't do it right then my teacher friend felt a tug on his shirt and he looked down and Philip was standing beside him It's mine, Philip said. It's mine. The children said, you don't ever do things right, Philip. There's nothing there. I did so do it, Philip said. I did do it right. It's empty. The tomb is empty. There was silence. A very full silence. And for you people who don't believe in miracles, I want to tell you that one happened that day last spring. From that time on, it was different. Philip suddenly became a part of that group of eight-year-old children. They took him in. He was set free from the tomb of his differentness. Philip died last summer. His family had known since the time he was born that he wouldn't live out a full lifespan. Many other things had been wrong with his small body, and so late last July, after an infection that most normal children could have quickly shrugged off, Philip died. At the funeral, nine eight year old children marched up to the altar, not with flowers to cover over the stark reality of death. Nine eight year olds with their Sunday school teacher marched right up to that altar and laid on it an empty egg, an empty, old, discarded egg. Pantyhose ache. End quote. Something Jesus said comes to mind. If you don't have the faith of a child, you're not going to see the kingdom of God. Something to think about. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for loving us, for opening our eyes to the truth of our Savior that he loved us so much, he died for us on Calvary's cross, and three days later, he stepped from that tomb alive that we might live forever with him someday in your kingdom. And Lord, forgive us for being so smart and so intellectual at times. We think we know everything, and we brush off the simple, the faith of children, thinking it's, you know, I don't know what we think. But Lord, we ask that you would work within each of us, that we would start having more faith like children that we would stop over analyzing things stop worrying about the promises you've given us and how you're going to take care of us trying to figure out how you're going to do it when we don't have to figure that out we just need to believe with childlike trust that you love us you've promised to take care of us and that is as good as done so give us the grace lord to believe as children but to stand like mature men and women of God against the evil of this present day. We thank you. We ask all this now. In Jesus' precious name. Amen.